The killing of a Saudi journalist. The rise of authoritarians in Hungary and Brazil. The shifting balance of powers on the global stage. Human rights concerns affect us from the local to the global. With 400 staff in 90 countries, Human Rights Watch publishes over 100 reports annually in order to press for changes in policy and practice around the world. I'm Sushma Raman. This is Justice Matters. Joining us today is Sarah Margon, the Washington Director of Human Rights Watch. Sarah is the organization's main point of contact with the U.S. government. She provides strategic and advocacy guidance, including legislative and policy development. Prior to joining Human Rights Watch, she was Associate Director of Sustainable Security and Peacebuilding at the Center for American Progress. She also served as Senior Foreign Policy Advisor to Senator Russ Feingold and as Staff Director to the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on African Affairs. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell us, uh, if you will, about some of the trends that you and Human Rights Watch are seeing across the world with respect to human rights challenges and opportunities. There's a number of trends that we're seeing. Some have to do more with bilateral sovereign countries and some more with the multilaterals. But I think maybe a couple of the, the really important ones would be that there seems to be sort of this idea that atrocities are the new normal. You know, in the aftermath of the Cold War and in 2005 with the UN agreement on responsibility to protect, governments and multilaterals were really pushing forward on this notion that civilians and citizens need to be protected by their own governments and they have a right to that protection and if they're not protected by their government someone else has to step in and do that. But that sort of fell by the wayside almost as soon as it was agreed and we've seen just horrific atrocities, attacks on individuals and attacks on norms and standards and laws in ways that you know have really cracked open the understanding of protection and the needs of people in a new way. And the response from governments and from multilaterals is, is really lacking as, as people all over the world are suffering and, and the number of refugees has climbed to an all-time high. Also at the multilateral level, we're seeing with the absence of leadership from some of the traditional supporters on human rights and advocates on human rights, we're seeing China and Russia step into the fold. This is both at the UN Security Council where they're blocking action, but also at the UN Human Rights Council where China is unfortunately a, a member and the US recently walked away. We're also seeing them use language that human rights advocates have used, but flipping it. So instead of actually having meaningful conversation about accountability and engagement, they're using it really to talk about dialogue and how to basically walk away from scrutiny or avoid scrutiny. And they're stopping civil society from engaging in the UN and having access to some of those conversations. And maybe I'll, the last one I'll, I'll, I'll flag is the role of companies. I think particularly social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, the elements of Google and Apple as well. I mean, the best example is really the role of Facebook in um, the Rohingya crisis, where the Burmese military was able to use that platform to really promote a campaign of discrimination and tolerance and harassment. And they didn't step in to do anything. Facebook didn't. And so, it, you know, it's been after the fact that they've got, now gone back and are starting to look at why that happened and how it wasn't flagged. A UN report recently said that they played a role in, in the likely genocide and crimes against humanity against the Rohingya. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done 
and companies that, that do social media because that space, that virtual space is no longer separate from reality and how, how that is managed and individuals are held accountable is, is important. So we've seen human rights under attack um, by governments around the world, bad actors, non-state actors, companies, and so on. And I'm wondering, how do human rights groups like Human Rights Watch build audiences for support outside of traditional supporters? It's a great question. I think like many organizations, we're kind of going through a period of reflection and change. And because we're a global organization, what works in country A might not work in country B. And we have to be aware of our audience. The traditional way that we have done our work has been researching with very clear, well-defined objective facts. And we've prided ourselves on the fact that we have information, often that many others don't have access to. And we put that information out there, and we use the media, and we use you know, policy and, and advocacy opportunities to move the ball forward. Sometimes it requires naming, a big public campaign of naming and shaming. Sometimes it's meetings that we're able to make persuasive arguments. But what we found now is that in an era where, particularly in the United States, where people, communities are so polarized, facts sometimes don't seem to matter. And facts get politicized very quickly. And so we've had to think a little bit more about how do we engage? We're not a member-based organization. And so we sort of have always done some grass top works. We've developed relationships. And we are still known for the facts, but we've broadened who we work with and how we work. So we've launched digital advocacy campaigns on a whole number of issues in the United States to reach out to Americans and get them more engaged. We've seen over the last two years with the election of Donald Trump that Americans are interested to be involved and to respond in many different ways to what, what they see coming out of the White House. And so we've really started to engage that way. And I find that it's, it's a constant and different way for us to think about our work. We can't talk to Americans, everyday Americans, using the law and using sort of the legal analysis. We have to think about what resonates with them. How can we get them involved? How can we get them to make noise that works in parallel with the work that we're doing, either in the media or in Washington? So when people in the United States think about human rights, they often think about issues halfway around the world, right? But it seems that increasingly there are movements and organizations within the United States that are using a rights-based framework to address injustice. And I'm wondering about Human Rights Watch's work in the United States and how you develop those programs and build support around domestic policy issues as well. So the, our U.S. program is actually our largest program. Um, I think we've got about 10 or 12 researchers. And it's been around for quite some time. But it's true that we aren't always as well known for it. It's a really, really busy active playing field in the United States. There's so many well-formed, thoughtful organizations who run the gamut of issues. But for us, some of the issues that we've worked on for a long time, the two sort of strands that we've really done has been on immigration and criminal justice. And obviously, those are two issues that continue to be right at the forefront. Under this administration of concerns, immigration has been a big one. And I will say that even under the last administration, we did see an increase in detention along the border. We did see some very worrisome signs about more U.S. government federal funds going to build up some of these detention centers. So it's gotten exacerbated by the 
pretty harmful and discriminatory policies of the Trump administration. But a lot of the building blocks to move in this direction were, were in place. So we don't have access to the detention centers, but we've been working with some of the lawyers who did. We've been making the case for why people coming up from Central America and uh, Latin America have a right to claim asylum. We've been pushing back on some of the language that the White House has been using. We've been documenting why the increased number of beds in the detention center is a bad idea. And we've been using the budget bills, or as we call them in Washington, the appropriations bills, as a key tool to push back. And you'll see now, actually, that the discussions in Congress are very much uh, around sort of this question of not just the wall, but more beds in the detention center. Do you work on privatization of prisons? We do have some work on that. We've also been working on parole issues and sort of how individuals get stuck in the system and the privatization of paroles. And um, we did a really incredible report on cervical cancer in Alabama. So we have a U.S. program that focuses on the United States, but then we also have thematic divisions, our women's division, our LGBT uh, division. They also do work in the United States. Our business and human rights division has done some work on the privatization. So it's really, it really runs the gamut, and our researchers have a lot of autonomy to choose their priorities. Sometimes it's building and deepening work that exists uh, by other organizations. Sometimes it's looking at an issue that hasn't gotten enough attention and we feel deserves that attention. So in your most recent report on the state of human rights in the world, Ken Roth, the executive director, talks about the resistance to authoritarians. And I'm wondering about the balance that Human Rights Watch and the human rights movement at large needs to strike between resistance and opposition to authoritarians versus creating a vision for a future that is based on shared values and principles. This is a conversation that we struggle with in the organization, I think at different, different areas of the organization. We're nonpartisan. We never take a side in an election. We never choose a political party. We aren't against or for specific individuals. But I think you see now sort of these entrenched and traditional autocrats as well as these new line populists, right? Hungary, Greece, Italy, the Philippines, Brazil. And their approach is very different than, you know, Egypt's President Sisi. The new populists are kind of are using hatred and scapegoating and intolerance to go after minorities to build a popular base of support. That's the first step. And then the second step is they're taking a thwack at the checks and balances that might exist in their country so that they can centralize power and make it harder to scrutinize what they're doing. That, in a sense, is a really great opening for us to push back because the tools they're using are all repressive, in many situations corrupt. Um, very abusive against the fundamental rights of, of people in their country. And so we are able to go after the context in which they work. We are able to push back against the laws. Concerns about the independence of judiciary is always an issue for us here in the United States and elsewhere. I think we've been watching in Poland, for example, and in Hungary, the shift in how the judiciary has moved in the last couple of years. And so there is so much to defend right now. We need to be collectively pushing back but it's different in different places. And I think part of that pushback in some cases is also offering an alternative vision. In certain countries where there have been a change 
in leadership, this offers an opportunity to put out a pro-human rights agenda, to find those opportunities. In the United States, for example, we do ha still have President Trump for two years, but you have a new Congress. And even though it's a split Congress with the House Democratic and the Senate Republican, there's still many new opportunities. So, for example, I drafted an op-ed with the head of our U.S. program division talking about how they can re-engage on an affirmative agenda and how they can use that agenda to push back against the president. So it's a little more nuanced than just go after a government, and we have to think a little bit more carefully about those proactive opportunities. So there's certain countries that are very much in the news in the United States nowadays, Saudi Arabia, China, Russia, for violations of human rights on a range of levels. So I'm wondering if you could talk about your work in those contexts. And also, what are some of the countries and issues that aren't in the news, but that Human Rights Watch, given the fact that you have presence in so many countries, is aware of and is trying to tackle? So we work in over 90 countries, which means if I actually was working day in, day out on all of the countries that we work on, I would never sleep, never see my family, right? So one of my roles is to choose the countries and the areas where I think we can see some momentum with the U.S. government. So we, Saudi Arabia is one of those countries right now, and we actually have been working on Saudi for many years. I remember at one point a few years ago, at the end of the last administration, before the conflict in Yemen started, our researcher, President Obama, was going to Saudi. And our researcher said, well, what can we ask him to do on human rights? Are there any opportunities? And we were like, no, there aren't tons of opportunities. He's not going to make a big splash. Maybe we can try to push for trial monitors, ask him to ask for the release of a few people. They were pretty moderate things uh, that we asked for. And then when the conflict in Yemen started, we began documenting the Saudi-led coalition's airstrikes. And it was very clear very quickly that they were indiscriminate and that the number of civilians being killed was often intentional, that civilian infrastructure was being destroyed intentionally. And so we began to document uh, from our vantage point of having a researcher in Yemen, what we are seeing, we saw U.S. bomb remnants on the ground, and we began to bring that to the United States and sort of say, this is a massive violation, and you may be complicit in this conflict because you're providing the weapons and refueling them midair. They didn't agree with us. They said, well, this is temporary. We're going to work with them to get them to do better targeting. And they did actually try to do that, but basically the Saudis weren't really interested in listening. And as things got worse and the situation got more dramatic, at the end of the Obama administration, they held a big sale of weapons. They said, this is not the time. We're going to hold this back and see if we can move things. And then they left office. And the moment Trump came back into office, one of the first things he did was restart that arms sale. And they have been basically aligned in a very close way the last two years. And we have continued to present our evidence and research. but basically banging on a closed door. And what has been so amazing to see is that the horrific killing of Jamal Khashoggi has changed how people are willing to talk about Saudi in the United States. In a very short period of time, his death, which in a sense people can relate to. You walk into an embassy or a consulate all the time. It's things that you and I do. It brought it home in a way almost that the Yemen conflict can't bring something home for people because people expect death and destruction in a conflict. And so the isolated and horrific nature of Khashoggi's killing really stepped over a boundary in a sense. It's unfortunate that it had to be that, but it has. And suddenly there is this awareness and this opportunity to begin changing the 
the U.S.-Saudi relationship, which is long overdue and needs to go far beyond just accountability for Jamal Khashoggi, although that's, that's obviously a big part of it. But if you look at sort of what's happening domestically and the repression, which has been around for a long time in Saudi, that's not surprising to anyone, but it's far worse under the crown prince than it's been as he sought to centralize power. And he is the main architect of the war in Yemen. And so we're at this sort of historical moment where we're spending so much time working with members of both parties to see how we can push back against the administration, which doesn't want to change anything with Saudi. So it's a really remarkable moment. I wish Jamal Khashoggi was here to help us work on it. I think he would have found great pleasure in watching this shift happen if he, if he, if he could have been here. But this is a trend around the world with attacks on journalists and human rights defenders and environmental activists. Yes. How do civil society groups build accountability and ensure that these types of crimes don't keep happening? This is such a tough, tough question. And, you know, I think one of the things, if you, I like to look, I'm an optimist, so I like to look for silver linings and everything. And I would say that one of the successes of the human rights movement has been the development of independent activists and civil societies around the world, NGO, local NGOs in every country almost in the world. And you can say that, in fact, they've gotten so much better and stronger, and the independent press and the legitimacy of the reporting has gotten so much more sophisticated that that's part of the reason they're under attack, right? So that this is a response to our success globally. You see these, this legislation in countries from Egypt to Ethiopia to Hungary going after NGOs, trying to hold governments to account. The number of journalists under attack, I think about the two Reuters journalists who are imprisoned uh, in Burma for trying to investigate an atrocity in Rakhine State that, where Rohingya were killed. It, it is so hard to move the ball forward, and the protections afforded to journalists seem in many cases, to just be ignored by leaders. They don't care. They don't want that additional level of scrutiny. And because of the connectivity that we have globally now, which is one of the positives of social media, I think leaders are worried about what will be exposed. And so instead of changing their actions and being more transparent and, and being willing to be held to account, they're cracking down harder. And so the UN has a really important role to play here in holding people to account. You know, the, the International Criminal Court is not going to be able to do everything it needs to do, and it's supposed to be for the, you know, top-level perpetrators anyway. But looking at other forms of accountability, hybrid tribunals, and this, I thought for many years we had sort of moved away from those hybrid tribunals. Mm -hmm. I sort of thought after the end of the Sierra Leone conflict that maybe that was it. That was the last one. It was very overfunded and in the end didn't produce as much as everyone had hoped. But in a sense, it looks like we may be moving back to something like that. You've got two investigative mechanisms underway via the UN, one on Burma and one on Syria. It's hard to believe that if a court is actually set up down the road, it's not going to have some regional or hybrid capacity. So, you know, that's one of the ways in which I think we can see accountability, but it's a really long and slow process. And I think in the interim, civil society and journalists are going to be increasingly at risk. What are some of the countries or topics that you think are not in the news but we need to be paying more attention to? I'm really struck by how quick the media is to forget about the African continent, mm -hmm. particularly Sub-Saharan Africa. For many Africans, concerns about terrorism or counterterrorism don't sort of hit the top five or 
10 things that they're concerned about daily. And yet that's sort of how the United States and a lot of the Western countries look at the African continent as, you know, ungoverned, open spaces, potential terrorist risk. And there's so much more there. It's such an incredible continent with such incredible opportunity. And it just doesn't get the attention and regular engagement that it deserves. And it's a big continent. There's a lot of things going on there that, you know, deserve attention. What happens in the Democratic Republic of Congo may or may not have a bearing on what happens in Kenya. But without a smart engagement on these countries, there's just sort of a willful blindness. You know, the Congo just had this election. By all accounts, the election itself produced a winner that did not become the president. And the United States put out a statement that welcomed the named individual, President Tshisekedi. And I understand this was the first time that there was a transition, peaceful transition in Congo. But the process by which he has become president was so fraught, the context was so fraught, it looks like you know corruption and efforts to rig and undermine the democratic process came down from the top that for the United States, which had actually been leading on this, to basically give a free pass is, sends a terrible message about not just how they believe elections, the value of elections, but how they envision the context in which elections occur. And that has an impact on people who want to be part of peaceful mm -hmm. movements. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, for the U.S. to encourage people to, to mobilize peacefully, it undermines that. And just as a side note, they made this comment about Congo on the same day that they condemned the, the Venezuelan president mm -hmm. and the election there. So the hypocrisy was sort of exposed for mm -hmm. everybody to see, and the Congolese noticed that, I think, more than anybody else. So you mentioned that you're an optimist, and I think that a lot of the news in the West on Africa is always negative. It's about yeah. famine or Boko Haram or some tragedy. And I'm wondering, what is the evidence you have there for human rights movement building? I've traveled around a lot of Sub-Saharan Africa, although I will say I've mostly visited sort of conflict zones myself. But one of the things I, I've always been really impressed by is not just the resilience of, it's hard to say African people because it's yes, a big right. continent with a lot of different people, but the, the ingenuity, the entrepreneurial ideas, the young population. One of the things President Obama did I, that I thought was so great was create this Young Leaders Program, which created networks and connections across the continent. Infrastructure has been so bad in Sub-Saharan Africa for so long that this was a way for them to sort of meet, connect ver uh, in person and then maintain that virtually. There's so, I mean, it's such a young continent, too, where you have this sort of these ideas and this hope and this interest in globalizing and engaging. That gives me a lot of hope. You know, I also think that there's so many resources across the continent that if they, if they can be used properly and without abusing or, you know, manipulating local communities, the potential for benefit for an entire country, and this is, you know, this is a tough one, is really incredible. But it's also, there's so many beautiful countries that, you know, I remember spending some time in Eastern Congo. It was incredible. It was like you were in um, a fantasy land with beautiful mountains and flowers and gorillas. And it was incredible. So, I, you know, I do think there's a lot more. And I wish, I've always wished that U.S. policy would not be sort of toward the continent per se, but towards individual countries in a smart way. And that because of 
the development across the continent, that human rights would be a key piece of this. There's a lot of young nascent democracies there with young constitutions that need support to really realize sort of how rule of law and governance can benefit everyone. And the U.S. has sort of done the opposite, put it as a side tool and focused on, you know, economic development and counterterrorism. Um, just switching gears, I'm wondering if Human Rights Watch works on Guantanamo, and if so, what's your yeah. kind of value add in that space? We've worked on Guantanamo for many, many years. We've been in favor of shutting Guantanamo for many years. Obama was supposed to close it. That did not happen because of pretty intense bipartisan arguments and fights. What we've been watching for in this administration is the potential transfer of people from the battlefield to Guantanamo. And we have been concerned that that might happen in a number of instances, but so far it hasn't. So we're still waiting for it to be closed, which doesn't look like it's gonna happen. I mean, you can make a budgetary argument at this point that it's not smart fiscally to keep Guantanamo open, along with all the other concerns. But is it likely that additional people will be sent there? We don't know, yeah. we don't know, we hope not. There's been some calls from Republican members of Congress to do that, but so far we haven't seen it. We hope that that stays the case. And what are your key policy priorities in the coming year? We spend a lot of time sort of trying to defend the mantle and make sure that even though the U.S. can sometimes be a hypocritical actor in the global community, very much so now, but certainly even before that, that the U.S. doesn't do as much damage as possible, particularly the President of the United States, who has, whose rhetoric has really undermined U.S. commitment to human rights, but whose actions have as well. So we spend a lot of time working on that. More specifically, we've been doing a lot of work on China, particularly around Xinjiang and the political internment of, of Uyghurs. But also, we've seen the greatest crackdown in China ever and we've also seen China exporting and trying to surveil some of its own citizens overseas. So that's a real concern for us, along with the disappearance of lawyers and others in China itself. Saudi will continue to be a, a real serious priority, both what it's doing in, in Yemen, but also what's happening domestically, detention of women, religious minorities. And Burma continues to be a, a priority. You know, there's been very little accountability for the Rohingya crisis, which we've said was crimes against humanity. There is an effort underway to investigate more, but as we watch Burma backslide from the small gains it had made in the last few years, how the international community responds and puts the Rohingya crisis in context is going to be terribly important. There's any number of other issues that will continue to come up. There's no shortage of crises. Obviously, Syria continues to be a crisis, the refugee situation, the border. So we try to work sort of with, you know, we're a small team in Washington, but we try to sort of amplify and, and work with our colleagues to do as much as we can. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Once again, this is Justice Matters. I'm Sushma Raman, the Executive Director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Learn more about the Carr Center and our work at www carcenter.hks.harvard.edu. You can tune into the rest of our episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Alex Geller produced and edited this episode. Thank you for joining us.